Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hi, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I am your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, we're speaking to Damien Riggs, author of the book, The Psychic Life of Racism in Gay Men's Communities, published in 2018 by Lexington Books. Damien W. Riggs is Associate Professor in Social Work at Flinders University and an Australian Research Council Future Fellow. He's the author of over 150 publications in the fields of gender and sexuality studies and mental health, and he, he also works in private practice as a Lacanian psychotherapist. Damien, welcome to the show. Hi. So let's start with your background. You're a psychotherapist. What does it mean to be a Lacanian psychotherapist? That's a good question. I think my training is in psychoanalysis. And so to be a Lacanian, I guess, is to think about not how people consciously think about, you know, what it means to be themselves, but what are the things unconsciously that drive us towards what are our desires what are our things that propel us that we may not always be aware of and I work therapeutically with young transgender children so in many ways that psychoanalytic training sort of sits to one side of the work that I do but in many ways it also does inform a lot of the work I do in terms of working with parents of children to look at their desires and and particularly for struggle parents who struggle to look at what it is that they're struggling about in terms of understanding that their child is transgender. So because your book is about gay men, do you also work a lot with gay men in your practice? Uh, In the past I did. That was where I sort of started from was working with uh, gay men as individuals and as couples. But as the last decade has progressed, it's become that I now only work with transgender children. So then tell us about how you came to write this book on, as you call it, the psychic life of the psychic life of racism in gay men's communities. So that too has a really long trajectory. My PhD was on racism. And whilst I was doing that PhD, I sort of was trying to grapple with what it meant for me to be a white man, but a white gay man. And how did I put together those two things, which was one of you know, immense privilege, and one also of feeling marginalization on the basis of being gay. And that became a side project to my PhD, which was to try and map out race privilege amongst white lesbians, gay men, bisexual people. And so that resulted in a book called Priscilla, White Queen of the Desert that came out in 2006. And since then, I've, I've, since completing my PhD and moving on to other areas of research, it's always something that I come back to 
being very aware of racism in gay men's communities and in LGBT communities more broadly. And so the opportunity came up to edit this collection and I, I guess I leapt on that opportunity because it was something that I knew there was more to a lot more to say on. But before we get into the specifics of the book, if you don't mind backing up a little bit, how did you come to even become professionally interested in race at all? Uh, that's an interesting question. So as an undergrad uh, in psychology, I did a minor in women's studies and a lecturer that started at the time in women's studies when I was studying was a, a Professor Ali Morton Robinson, an Indigenous woman, and uh, her classes just blew me away to thinking about Indigenous sovereignty and to thinking about issues of race and whiteness that I wasn't getting exposed to in my psychology studies. And that became more and more of an interest for me to really unpack whiteness, my own whiteness, and whiteness as an institutional phenomenon. So that led me to then doing honours on that topic and then doing my PhD on that topic. And then fast forward to now, and you're, you're coming out with a book all on the topic. Because it's an anthology, meaning that there are different contributors for each chapter and each of the topics. I'm wondering, first of all, if you and all the contributors are speaking about gay communities specifically in Australia? No. So it's an international collection. So I think from memory, there's only one person writing from within the Australian context and the rest are people writing from the United States, from Canada, from UK, from countries in Asia. So there's really a very broad, and that was, I guess, one of my original, you know, intentions for the book was that it was as broad as possible. There's there's lots of breadth that isn't covered, um, but wanting to ensure that it wasn't just restricted to one geographic locale. And when you say that the opportunity presented itself, how did it present itself to you to edit this book? Uh, so... A colleague that I had been working with who came to Australia to work uh, together with me around the topic of gay men and racism, uh, something needed to come from that, that collaborative work that we undertook in Australia together. And so I pitched this idea for the book series and unfortunately he wasn't able to be involved due to other demands on his time uh, and other interests that he was pursuing. So I felt that we needed some sort of deliverable from our project, but also that it was something that I had had a number of years to think about following through with, mm-hmm. and it became more and more, I guess, evident to me that the collection was really necessary. And, and given that it's such a sensitive topic, or at least it is here in the United States, I, I wonder about what it's like in Australia, um, but, but given its sensitivity, I'm wondering if it was at all difficult to find people who were willing and ready to write about this topic or if in fact um, there were lots of people who who were up for the job? I mean, I guess to backtrack a tiny bit, like the big difficulty for me was to edit a collection by myself as a white gay man and that was something that helped me back from doing this sooner that the colleague I had hoped to edit this with who wasn't able to would have offered another voice to that editorial position. And I think it was something when I when it fell back that I was likely to do it by myself, I really had to sort of pause and think, 
is this okay? And I think there's still a sense within me that I'm left with a feeling that there's aspects of it that aren't okay. It's not okay that that yet again there's a, a white gay voice collating the voices of people who some of whom are white and some of whom are not. But at the same time I felt to then say, well, I'm just not going to do it at all was an inadequate response as well. So I was sort of left with the feeling that, you know, let's get this happening um, and let's do it on, you know, the hope that our voices come together in a way that mine isn't, you know, the dominant voice in the book. And I certainly, I think that's what's happened, that it's a really diverse collection of voices. But we're always being mindful of that, that, it, that it's me editing the collection and that's it's part of the issue. But in terms of getting people who are willing to write chapters, it was, I guess, fortunate that I had a background in critical race and whiteness studies, that I had been the, the president of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association, that I'd had lots of interactions with people over the past decade in this area. So I, I think maybe I had uh, came into this from a place of trust mm-hmm. or a place of awareness that people would know to some extent, what my intentions were and my aims were. So in that sense, it, was, it wasn't too difficult to get people willing to write chapters. And it sounds like you came to it from a place, honestly, of some kind of credibility and authority because you have, you've been a scholar in this field for a while and have been very involved in it professionally. I, I'm wondering if you don't mind saying more about what you felt wrong about, as you said, yet again another white voice white gay voice collating um a collection of voices other voices on the subject of racism Mm. i mean i think it's going back to my undergraduate studies and going back to the work of aileen morton robinson it is very much from the very beginning being taught the field of critical race and whiteness studies that one of the key problems is that white voices are everywhere and that our voices are treated as universal voices or generic voices rather than racialized voices. And so for me, that was something that was really at the front of my mind. And, you know, this is the first collection that I've edited on race and whiteness. And again, in, in the other one that I edited, I was the sole editor. Another one I was a joint editor on, but we were both white people. So it is about you know, this isn't something new to me to be grappling with and it's still something that that I know I can be doing better on, that there could be other ways to do collaborations that maybe would bring in other voices in different ways. But each time one of these opportunities have come up, it has felt like on the one hand there's the politics of voice and the problems associated with white people's voices being the ones that are you know, leading the charge. But on the other hand, it's, it's to, do, to not do that is to sit back and say, okay, well, I just won't do this at all. And then racism in gay men's communities is led by white people. So, you know, it's enacted by white people. So to, to then say, well, I'm going to just absolve myself of that and not speak is just as much a problem. And that's what always leads me or propels me to speak is to say, look, I'm responsible for this as much as any other white gay man is. That's the place that I'm speaking from is a place of accountability and responsibility, not as a place of I'm the arbiter of what voices should be heard. And why the focus on gay men specifically? I mean, is racism 
does racism play out differently in the lesbian community or in the heterosexual community? I mean, that is the perennial question. And I think there's certainly bits and pieces of research, including by some of the authors in the book that have said, look, racism is racism. And in a sense, that's correct. The forms that it takes and the effects that it has um, are broadly similar. But I think within gay men's communities, there are specific forms that it takes. And for me, that's around racialized desire and how that is enacted and how that is enunciated and the effects that that has. And so to me, it's not necessarily to say that gay men and racism is an entirely unique entity separate from every other form of racism, but it is about there are specificities, and I think that's that was my driver for this book, was mapping out those specificities rather than saying there's this thing called gay racism and there's lots of writing on that topic. I was really interested in what are the specific forms that that takes because I think it maps out very differently in very different contexts. And what's the relevance of this topic at this very moment in time? Well, of course, it, it, you know, the relevance changed as things changed in the context of the countries that the authors were writing in. The political climates have changed radically since the project started, which was, of course, a number of years ago the project started. Um, and I think that has made, if anything, the book more salient and more timely than even when it was written, when it was originally planned, sorry. So I think... Yeah, I, I think it has it has the potential to speak not just to the agendas we set at the time when we were writing our chapters, but I think it speaks to agendas as they continue to come up uh, right now and into the future. Are you able to give an example of a change that took place politically or in you know one of the countries from which the contributors or yourself come, um, and, and how it affected? Uh, the obvious example is Trump, mm. um, and I think that what some of the authors were mapping out is that when LGBT in general rights are under threat, those within those communities in positions of power rally around their powerful positions. So if you're a white gay man and gay rights or LGBT rights in general come under threat under a particular um, political administration, you will rally around your whiteness, you will rally around your middle classness and use those as ways to maintain your position of power, even if aspects of your position and maybe around being gay are threatened. There are other aspects of your identity, and here pertaining, of course, to white gay men, that you can rally around to maintain some sort of authority. So I think that was something that some of the chapters speak to, and certainly I think it's something that plays out under the particular economies of power in the States at the moment around liberalism, around economic um, drives and desires, that we see different projects going on, and I know particularly in, the, in San Francisco at the moment around the housing market and, and white gay men and, and corporations in which white gay men are a part, you know, selling off affordable accommodation or affordable housing economic, under the guise of urban renewal, but actually, you know, what it ends up is the gentrification of, of suburbs that pushes marginalised communities outwards from city, city centres and pushes, 
particular affluent groups, which include white gay men, towards the center. So it's funny because I was going to ask you what you mean when you say that under threat, white gay men sort of rally around their whiteness to the extent that that's, that's their source of power. And, and whether that's a, I'm wondering if you could say how that manifests and also whether you think that's a conscious thing or an unconscious thing. Uh, well, uh, I'm not sure whether conscious or unconscious is the way to frame it. I think it is more about knowing that you have access to certain forms of privilege or cultural capital and that not wanting those to be threatened. And so there are ways to put your voice forward that say, as a white gay man, that say, look, you know, this is the the thing about me that I want you to treat as salient right now, so stop stepping on my rights around being gay. But then there's other instances where, where white gay men may step on other people's rights by asserting their whiteness or asserting their class privilege. Mm. And so I think it's it depends on the situation as to when which aspect comes to the fore. And I think some of that may very well be conscious. And I and I think the unconscious parts, if you want to frame it in that way, is, about, is more about a lack of awareness that mm. that is what is happening. This may sound like a tangential question, but, you know, I'm in New York, you're in Australia, and when you talk about Trump, I'm, I want to ask you, are you guys over there feeling the effects of Trump? I think everyone's feeling the effects of Trump because what it does, even though we may be, a, many of us may be aware of the machinations behind Trump being in power, and the, the rhetoric that he has used to get into power and that he uses to maintain his power, it does give legitimacy to a lot of voices that under Obama and under other regimes of power may have been more marginalised or given less legitimacy. So I think certainly in the UK and in Australia at the moment, it gives legitimacy to right-wing voices that in Australia were more suppressed and now they can say, look, we, you know, there's a, there's a president of the most powerful country who, who aligns with our views. So our views should come to prominence. And certainly in the last six to 12 months, we've seen a rise of anti-Muslim sentiment in Australia, anti-Muslim violence in Australia, and some of that does come back to those groups really speaking from a position where they say, look, why is Australia not doing more along these lines? They are in the States. Trump is in the States. He's going to build a wall. So why aren't we doing more in Australia to push people, marginalised groups, out of the country or not allow people into the country in the first place? So in the book, you start off by talking about the danger of collapsing. Um, I put that word collapsing in quotes because you, you use it deliberately. Collapsing the differences among gay men under the umbrella of quote-unquote gay and mm. I'm wondering if you can speak to how that works and what is the nature of the heterogeneity within the gay community that's so often overlooked? I think it's a tendency within any group to to focus on similarities rather than differences, except when it serves the group to focus on differences. And that's my real interest in in putting that emphasis in there is that 
you know, there's a lot of times where gay men and white gay men in particular will focus on similarities amongst gay men or similarities amongst LGBT people as some sort of collective when it serves the purposes of the particular group that's making that claim. And here, I'm, again, I'm thinking about gay men. But then when it doesn't serve those purposes, so, for example, here in Australia at the end of last year, um, marriage equality uh, came through and that primarily benefits lesbians and gay men. At the moment, still legislatively, it disbenefits transgender people until that is all sort of wrapped up and tidied up, hopefully by the end of this year. But who, where are those voices being directed at in Australia at the moment? Is it, okay, so we have marriage equality, great, done and dusted and moving on from there? Or are those voices who were primarily white, lesbians and gay men, agitating for marriage equality? Have they shifted to the rights of LGBT asylum seekers? Have they shifted to the rights of LGBT Indigenous people or refugees or the rights of transgender people in general? And that's, I guess, my interest is is sometimes everyone becomes collapsed together because that becomes politically useful. And other times those differences are really treated as okay, well, that's your work to do that on your own and, and we'll focus on our own business. So to me, I always want to keep the differences up at the forefront so that people are in some ways being held accountable when they collapse the differences. You introduce us to a word, or at least introduce me to a word in the book, homo innocence. What is that? Mm. So I think it's this idea of sort of what I was just speaking about, that you know, under marriage equality, for example, lesbians and gay men particularly can agitate against the state and say, look, you're excluding us and this is harmful to us and I'm certainly not being meaning to be negative when I frame it in that way. But then there is this innocence around or a claim to innocence around knowing that there are a whole plethora of other communities who are struggling, who are being disenfranchised by the state and a lack of awareness or an alleged lack of awareness means that there's no engagement with those issues. And that's, I guess, my ongoing concern, and it comes from my background in critical race and whiteness studies, is that white people can claim certain things as issues and agitate for change on that basis, but then claim innocence around a whole lot of other forms of structural violence that are happening to people who are not white and claim innocence of that, so not being part of that violence, but also claim a lack of awareness and so therefore no need for action. So is homo innocence like a kind of denial, denial of not just the fact of these things happening, but denial of being involved in it? Yeah, so it's a denial of complicity, Mm. uh, but it's also a denial of or a refutation of the need to act to need to be accountable for one's race privilege, if we're talking about white gay men, and to act on the basis of that privilege, to be responsible for it. So it's sort of, it's multiple in in sense and the meanings of of innocence. But as a psychoanalyst, do you have any idea why white gay men would would be motivated to deny awareness or uh, of that complicity? why they wouldn't want to mobilize for those other causes. Because I I guess for anyone to mobilize for a cause that you do not see as your own puts you at risk. So, you know, we're all in many ways fundamentally 
geared towards protecting our own interests. And it is a risk to try and protect someone else's interests. And so it's much safer to say, look, these are my interests and I'm going to focus on those and those are your interests and you focus on them, rather than saying, no, these are everyone's interests. If, if my human rights are met but someone else's human rights are not met, then none of our rights are met. And that is, that is the broader picture, but I think the individual picture is much more focused on one's own rights and one's own well-being. What is it? And go ahead. There you go. No, I mean, what do you think is the risk? Of, of, of well, the risk is disenfranchisement. The risk is that that if you stand up for someone else's rights, whether that be, you know, you see a, a police officer being violent towards another person, and you walk over and you say, "Hey, that's not okay," you're at risk. If you stand up to the state and say, "Look, these these." forms of discrimination are not okay against this other group that I'm not a part of, you come under scrutiny. And for some of us, those risks are okay. Those risks are the only way we can ethically be in the world is to take on the risks that come with advocating for someone else's rights. And and lots of people do that, including many white gay men. But for many other people, those risks are too high or those risks are simply not salient, that they're, they're not something on some people's agenda, that, that other people's rights should be on our own agenda. You make a subtle but important point that in, in the book that racism in the gay community doesn't just happen in one way or doesn't just manifest in one way. Maybe the driving forces behind racism may be sort of similar across situations, but that the ways racism actually gets enacted are quite diverse. And I think you, you're, you reference a diversity of racisms. What is that? How, how, how are, what are the various ways by which racism can get enacted in the gay men's community? I mean, if we think about, you know, racism as a legacy of imperialism or colonialism, then that took different forms in different places, depending on the agendas of the colonizers, whether it was, was to come and take land or to take resources or to take people, uh, so that looks different in different places, and therefore in those different places, the legacies of that racism will look different. So in Australia, you know, the agenda of colonisation was to take land, it was to send unwanted people, so convicts, um, to Australia. There was no recognition of Australia as being people. That was the whole concept of terra nullius, was an empty land. So it wasn't to colonise people, even though that's what, of course, happened. It was to colonise land. In other countries, it was to take people and and, and put them into slavery. And so the, the, those different legacies mean that there are different ways that racism plays out in terms of the recognition of people as, as people, as people whose land was stolen or whose lives were stolen. And I think in terms of gay men's communities, then that racism plays out in terms of who can be seen as a desirable subject, who is not seen as a subject at all. The ways that people are spoken about as subjects become subjects of desire here, I mean, um, become whether they are intelligible or not. And I think that maps out very differently in different countries and different contexts. And I want to get into that because you take you take up the, controver- the controversial issue of sexual desire and its racialization in in the book, first of all, that phrase, the racialization of desire, what does that mean exactly? 
So it means the ways in which we desire is racialized. The way in which we desire is shaped by uh, by racism, by uh, racialized norms of what can be desirable, what cannot be desirable, what should be desirable. Uh, yeah, that's I guess what that means. So you assert, or you say that a lot of white gay men assert their right to exclude certain people from their sexual purview and assert it as an expression of their sexual freedom, one which they have fought very hard to have. What is your counter argument to this? Because it's something that comes up a lot in, um, in conversations among gay men. And yeah, I mean, that is one of, I think one of the, the spiky points of the book is that, you know, gay men have fought so long for sexual freedom to not be pathologized. But if we look at that history a bit closer, it is it was white gay men making that fight, and other groups of gay men were making very different fights at the time to you know to be recognised as human, to have human rights, to not be discriminated against in other forms under other guises. And so I think that's part of that history that we need to be very mindful of. And that's not to say that that the recognition of gay men's rights as a category hasn't benefited all gay men in some way, but it's to acknowledge who was agitating for those rights and then to also acknowledge, therefore, that the right to to sexual freedom brings with it very particular groups' agendas. And so it is about acknowledging that, that not everyone is going to have been liberated by that sexual freedom and that also that that claim to sexual freedom brings with it this rationalisation of desire that only particular groups are seen as desirable. The, the emphasis of the book seems to be on how white gay men, how their desire is racialized. but do you find either from talking to your colleagues or even working with patients, do you ever find that racial minority gay men also engage in this kind of exclusion when it comes to who they desire? I think, I mean, I can get what you're saying, but I think I would want to be careful about categorizing the book as only focusing on white gay men's desire. I think some of the chapters start with what does white gay men's desire do to men, gay men who are not white. Mm -hmm. But I think, there is then also a speaking back to that and saying how do certain groups of gay men who are not white enact their own desire in the face of that a, a white racialized desire how do also some men take that on board internalize that a racialization of desire how do some men not uh, and then how within and this was an interest of mine that I think comes out a bit in the book, but it was something I really wanted to come out more in the book, is with amongst men who are racialized as not white, how do different groups racialize each other around desire? Hmm. And some of that is part of an economy of whiteness, of course. It's not saying it's, it's outside of an economy of whiteness around desire, but it's also the very specific ways that, that desire can play out between groups who are racialized as not white. I guess one of the things that I'm thinking about that I'd like to hear how you account for is my own anecdotal observations that among among gay men, as you say, not racialized as white, sometimes you hear about men who have an explicit preference for other men who are not white. 
Um, maybe, mm. maybe sometimes they're interested only in dating other men of their same race or of their same ethnicity. And I'm wondering how you think mm. about that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's always what I, I was hoping we would get to more in the book, and we didn't quite take that, you know, maybe as far as it could have gone, but I think it was taken a long way. But I think it is about looking at, the again, the systems of racialized desire. And so for some people, um, for some men who are racialized as not white, white men will become an object of desire because that's how racism works, directing everyone towards whiteness. Other people will say, be very aware of that and say that's not how desire should function and will actively work against that. And then other men will have had different encounters with whiteness and so their racialized desires will be directed towards people of their own cultural groups because that's what they've grown up in and that's what they know best of all and that's what their what their their racialized desire sees. So I think there's multiple entry points into that racialized desire and that's what I guess the book is trying to do is to say, look, there is this mode of desire that is privileged and it's one that privileges white gay men. But that can be and is resisted. That can be and is not always internalised. That There are many ways to live with, respond to, desire under that hegemony. Um, so we, I guess the book was wanting to speak about that hegemony of whiteness in terms of gay men's desire, but not say it's the only way of desiring. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that there might be men white gay men listening to this interview thinking, well, you know, I like who I like. And if I don't like men of certain races or certain ethnicities, well, that's my preference. And I don't know that I can really change that. So are you saying that I'm supposed to change it? And I feel like I have a sense of your answer because you talk about how in the book, you talk about how your emphasis isn't really on how racism operates on the individual level, but on the systems. But I'd nonetheless like to see if you could explain that concept to this hypothetical guy that I just quoted. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, some of the work I've done, some of the work Denton Kalander's done and other people have done has really looked on that rhetoric of preference. And I guess part of the response that would come from the book is no, no preference is abstracted from a context. Preferences are shaped by context. So to say that, you know, to, for a white gay man to say I only desire white gay men and that is my preference, my response, the book's response would be no, that that it, that is a a standpoint, a subjective view that's shaped by context that says whiteness is the most desirable um, form of cultural capital. So that's one response to it. Another response would be that, okay, you can, you know, say that your desire is fixed, which I, you know, as a psychoanalyst would struggle to believe, but you... um, you can think about how you enunciate that desire. So one of the entry points into this book for me was a paper I did a number of years ago on anti-Asian sentiment on Gator. And was it on Gator? I think it was on Gator. And um, I think that was the, the website. And, you know, looking at how white gay men express that sentiment 
So, you know, my, my question that I was really left with from, from that paper was, why do you need to express this sentiment? Why do you need to have on your profile not into X, Y, and Z? What does that do? What does that do rhetorically? What does it do psychically for you to have that that on your profile? Why is it that you might have these preferences that you believe are, you know, unchangeable? Mm. What does it do to express them? Is it about expressing whiteness? Is it about trying to ward off anyone contacting you that you may not find desirable? What kind of world do you want to live in where no one can contact you that doesn't fall under your remit? Why is it so difficult or so uncomfortable just to say to someone, you know, no, I'm not interested. You know, you surely, you know, a white gay man who has on their profile not interested in X, Y, and Z is still going to get contacted by a whole lot of other people and only a very small portion of those they're going to end up being attracted to. So they're saying no to lots of people. Why can't you just say no to anyone that doesn't that doesn't interest you? Why do you have to have a list on your profile that mm. says, no, don't even try to contact me if you are X, Y, or Z? So it is, it's about acknowledging that these alleged preferences sit in a, in a racialized context thinking about why you need to what does verbalizing them do what what does it achieve for you and what might things look like if you didn't have to say those things if you didn't feel compelled to have them listed so i i want to make sure i'm understanding you right to make sure our 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 listeners understand it sounds tell me if i if i'm hearing you right it sounds like you're not you're not advocating that any individual gay man maybe a white gay man who has these kinds of uh, parameters ought to simply by force change their desires or even trying to tell them that their desires are wrong. But it does sound like you are rigorously inviting them to, to, to question them and to, and to try to understand how those desires, they don't just happen. They're not just naturalized. They or, or natural or essential that they they, they happen as a result of living in a certain kind of world with a certain kind of hierarchy and a certain way of seeing other bodies, other racialized bodies, and that they're, and and that for the good of all of us, it behooves us to really examine those things. Am I getting it? Yeah, that's exactly it. I think otherwise, I mean, that's sort of critical race and whiteness studies one hundred and one. Like, yes, as white as a white person myself. You know, it's important to be looking at these hierarchies, how they operate and, and not being complicit with them. And that should, I think, you know, primarily be driven by a desire to, you know, better the lives of other people who are marginalised by racialized uh, hierarchies. But there's also, a, one would think, a knock-on effect that it also can benefit your own life. It can also mean that you are exposed to a wider range of people. You learn more things about the world. I mean, that's not the primary narrative I would want to go with because that's sort of the narrative of, you know, you be nice to people of other cultural groups because you benefit, because you learn about their food or you learn about their, you know, way of talking. That's to me a really limited form of cultural inclusion. Um, but if you start from the place of acknowledging your privilege and acknowledging how that privilege impacts upon other people's, um, you know, well-being, then if you also can learn to say, okay, so I'm get, I, I'm also learning from this, I'm also growing from this, and that's to me a totally fine secondary outcome. 
that you also your worldview expands. But is it, it is the primary motive you think an ethical one? I think it's an, eth- an ethical imperative to sort of think, okay, so as a white gay man, I can move in the world in this particular way, and a lot of the reason that I can move in that particular way is because other people can't move in that way. Is that just? Well, I would say no, it's not just. So therefore, what are the ways that I can move in the world that are more ethical? And is that some of that will be giving up or finding ways to not always impose or assert my privilege? Other ways will be just about trying to make it possible by leveraging my privilege that other people can move in the world more freely. I, I want to get into some of the chapters in the book because once once we do, I think our listeners will get a sense of how comprehensive um, how, how com- comprehensive your coverage is. There's a chapter by Ibrahim Abraham entitled Islamophobia, Racialization and Misinterpolation in Gay Men's Communities. Do you mind telling us briefly what this chapter is about? So Ibrahim talks about um, gay Muslim men and he speaks about how Islamophobia interpolates um, gay Muslim men under a particular rhetoric of terror, of threat, of um, terrorism. And I think it about how that, I guess, is it, it, his writing and, and all of his writing, which I've loved for a long time, is a is a form of resistance to those interpolations. Some of us may be hearing the term interpolation for the first time. Do you mind telling us what it is and what is misinterpolation? I mean, I guess it depends on your background. It means different things in different places. If you're, if you're a linguistic scholar, it will mean one thing. If you're a cultural studies scholar, it will mean something else. But for me, it means that there's a hail that comes to us from the state, from culture, to address ourselves or be addressed in particular ways. And we take that hail up, many of us, because to not do so means we're not intelligible. So if if the state says, you know, we can only make sense of you through this lens, that that gay men must be this, or people who are racialized as not white must be that, that hail is the way that you're offered to be made sense of. And Resisting that is is the big challenge because often, most often, the form, the hail that is on offer, the call, the invitation that is on offer is not particularly appealing. It's normally very limited. It's very framed in negative ways. It can be pathologizing. Um, so we take up those hails. We are interpolated, therefore, into those discourses those dominant narratives but we also then have to try and fight against them because we we sort of acknowledge that they're they're not really what we want so we take them up to be intelligible to be to make sense but then we also and i guess that's what the book is doing is also saying okay but that's not all there is Mm. so then how are gay muslim men interpolated could you say more about that i mean i think it comes back to racial profiling, it comes back to racialization in general, that that looking in a certain way, so, you know, there's that are looking in certain ways that are um, determined by other people to represent a particular category means that 
people read you in that particular way. So you are interpolated when you walk through an airport, when you look a particular way in a country such as Australia, in a country certainly such as the States, to be a risk. Mm. And you are then scrutinised in a particular way because of that perceived risk. So that is the interpolation. And then how you respond to that interpolation will affect the outcome of that perceived risk. And I think for for gay Muslim men who, who must live with, in some contexts, homophobia in their own communities, but then also Islamophobia in broader communities, are no, negotiating those multiple interpol- interpolations that hail them as acceptable as not acceptable in terms of their sexuality as potential terrorists or as potential citizens in other contexts. Um, and that's, I guess, what that chapter, I think, speaks to. That, in other words, gay, and again, we keep coming back to gay white men, I, th- I think maybe just as a shorthand, but if we if we stay with them for a moment, I guess what the chapter is saying is that gay white men repeat the same trauma, as as well intentioned as we might be, and as and as um, as progressive as we might try to be, we we repeat and put gay Muslim men in this same kind of position. Yeah, I mean, if 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 that is how, and there's certainly it's not as though white gay men are not in you know right wing political organisations. Like in that, that's a very right. blunt example of it. But just in terms of desire, there are those narratives that we may see on dating apps or in other places where where our some friends are interpolated in very particular ways by the white gay men who may engage them. And that may be hypersexualization. It may be positioning them as a threat. It may be just a whole range of pathologizing or demeaning language that repeats that trauma. Yes. Mm-hmm. And speaking of repeating trauma, then there's another chapter by, and I, I'm afraid I'm going I'm to mess up the name, Su, Sulaiman Giwa. Did I say that right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, the chapter is on racism and gay men of the African diaspora. Mm. And this person asserts that racism repeats these men's trauma. Can you say something about how that works? Yeah, so in Suleiman's chapter, it was he was looking at men who had migrated from the continent of Africa, so from many different countries, to Canada, and how for some, perhaps they thought they were escaping particular regimes um, that were traumatic, but then they come to Canada and they and they think this will be a space of liberation as gay men, but as black gay men. Uh, new forms of trauma are perpetuated when they try and move in communities that are dominated by white gay men, that they then become yet again the other and yet again the person who is stigmatised and and stereotyped and either, again, hypersexualized or seen as undesirable. And then you also have a chapter on gay orientalism by Jax Chen. What is gay orientalism? Mm. So that was something that I was really, really, I mean, there's lots of things that I was really, really keen to have in the book and some, for example, around um, anti-Jewish sentiment that we weren't able to get in the book. But um, for me, you know, part of my own background in critical race and white studies was around, the, the, you know, the study of Orientalism and, you know, the eye of the West upon the East and how that constructs what the East is meant to be. It's not actually a representation of the East at all or of Asia 
or of the Orient at all. It's a, entirely a representation of, of what the West makes mm. of everyone else and in terms of positioning people as, again, threats, as enemies, as all these sorts of, you know, phrases that we know we could repeat that, that are misrepresentations. And I was really interested in how, because I guess a lot of the work in the area of what gets called gay racism was on anti-Asian sentiment. And I was really interested in having that labelled as such rather than, again, collapsing under this idea of gay racism. You know, for me, when I first started working in this area, reading all the scholars working in this area, you, there really was what at first seemed like a dichotomy between black gay men being hypersexualized and Asian gay men being mm. feminized. But the more, of course, I read the literature, the more I realized the nuances to all of that and why the book tries to draw out all those nuances. But it was really about, you know, the, that chapter really speaking to how that functions, how Orientalism functions to position gay Asian men in very specific ways and how that is wrapped up in histories of war histories of colonization um so that um gay asian men are positioned in very particular ways and interpolated in very particular ways right and one of the nuances of how they're interpolated um is it is addressed by uh, the author's attention to the concept of the model minority yeah what is that so the model minority you know is this idea and it's often primarily perpetuated in the States, again, is, is of Asian students as doing very, very well, as getting, you know, straight A's at school, as having very su successful careers. So to prove to, you know, as an immigrant to the States, we should be here, you need to excel at everything. And, of course, it puts intense pressure on people to conform to that stereotype and then it becomes a stereotype that is perpetuated and we see it in, uh, you know, I can't think of a television show or movie where I haven't seen that stereotype perpetuated mm. um, in terms of, you know, always deferring to particular groups of people as being really good at something and because of this background. And I think for, for, for gay Asian men, it pays out in very particular ways around roles that will be taken during sex, um, precautions or... Um, safe sex practices that will or will not be participated in and how that how that sort of depicts people as model citizens or not, whether they will be complicit with white gay men's desires or not. You know, I'm glad that you acknowledge that there are certain, there are certain groups that couldn't get as much coverage as you wanted in the book. And I can only imagine that, that in order to do that, the, the task would be infinite. I, I'm not sure if, you cover Hispanic and Latino gay men, but I'm wondering if you consider those men to also be um, victims of this kind of racism and of this kind of interpolation. Definitely. And I think that it's, it, I think it does come out in one of the chapters, but it's something actually the colleague and I wrote about a couple of years ago in regards to RuPaul's drag race in regards to how mm. Latina qu uh, drag queens are positioned and, and this idea that also, you know, I remember the line from Tu Wong Fu, how the queen from the Latina queen is, is represented as running across the border or escaping across the border and doing so illegally. And so these narratives of border crossing, of illegality, I think those same narratives 
you know, we argued play out in drag race, but I think they certainly play out in gay men's communities more broadly around how Latino men are, are represented or racialized. Well, Damien, you know, I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about. And I think in the book, you do such a great job, as I said before, of really covering a lot of ground and inviting some really powerful and intelligent voices to to speak to these various experiences. So thank you for putting the book together and thank you for coming on the show. Before we go, do you mind telling us what you're working on now? I mean, as always, for me, I've always got my fingers in a lot of different pies. One of the areas that's really, um, well, there's two areas that's really important to me at the moment. One is, um, transgender young people so as i said that's where i primarily work uh, in psychotherapy is with trans young people and their parents so that's something that is an area for me we had a book out last year on trans young people in education i'm currently writing one on clinical practice with trans young people and i think it's just there's a lot said in that area but i think there's a lot of negative stuff said in that area so i think those of us who are speaking from a positive place need to keep putting those voices out there. And again, you know, it's that same issue. I'm not trans, I'm not a parent of a trans child, I'm a clinician. Um, you know, is my voice the voice that should be spoken? In, uh, but it is about to not speak, to not challenge, to not affirm to me as problematic. And then the other area is around LGBT people's relationships with animal companions. And I guess that does again mm. come from that same sort of logic of who speaks for animals. Um, animals certainly speak, but we don't listen to them often. Um, so how do, what are some of the specificities of how LGBT people relate to animal companions? How do we, how do they bring meaning to our lives that may be different to cisgender and or heterosexual people? How do they offer us a refuge from discrimination or trauma? Um, how do they keep us in relationships that may be violent if we're scared to leave, if we're scared what will be done to our animal companions? So that's an area that, you know, I became involved in through some colleagues who work in the area of human-animal studies, and it's been an amazing journey from a starting place of me going, well, what would be specific you know, what would be unique to, oh, my goodness, what isn't unique about, right. um, you know, what animal companions mean to those of us in the LGBT community. So that's a really interesting area for me as well. Yeah, such interesting topics. Um, congratulations on the ability to be so prolific and tackle them. Um, and, and best of luck. Again, thank you so much for coming on the show. To remind our listeners, I've, I'm speaking to Damien Riggs, and the name of the book is The Psychic Life of Racism in Gay Men's Communities. Damien, thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology in New York. I hope that you enjoyed the interview that you just listened to, and I also hope that you'll keep letting me know who you would like to hear on the show next or what books in psychology you're reading. To let me know, go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact. Until next time, have a great week.